I invite you at this time to open your Bibles that we might read together from Ephesians chapter 1, beginning at verse 3 and going on through verse 14. We read from Ephesians chapter 1, and we do so in connection with what we confess in Lord's Day 8 of the Heidelberg Catechism regarding the triune nature of our God. Beloved, hear the word of the Lord in Ephesians 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Thus far, our reading at this time. Confessional reading for this afternoon's sermon comes from Lord's Day 8 of the Heidelberg Catechism. You can find this on page 524 of the Book of Praise if you wish to follow along. There, beloved, we confess the following. How are these articles, the articles of the Apostles' Creed, divided? Into three parts. The first is about God the Father and our creation. The second about God the Son and our redemption. The third about God the Holy Spirit and our sanctification. Since there is only one God, why do you speak of three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Because God has so revealed himself in his word that these three distinct persons are the one true eternal God. This, beloved, we confess. Brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ, I doubt any of you will be surprised to hear that people in Canada increasingly do not believe that God exists. Between 2005 and 2016, for instance, the, the percentage of Canadians who state that they believe in God has dropped from 81% to 65%. That's a fairly significant drop in little more than a decade. 
And I suspect that many of us have noticed the overall rise in in atheism and agnosticism in our country, among our neighbors and co-workers. But what might be even more concerning is what people mean when they say that they believe in God. In 2016, for instance, of that, of that 65% of people who, who say they do believe in God, only 22% of that group believe in God as taught by their own religion, which is, generally speaking in Canada, Christianity. That's not saying that the 22% of Canadians believe in God as, as taught by the faith they identify with saying only 22% of the people who believe in God have what their own religion, their own words, considers an orthodox view of God. Which might leave us to wonder then, what do so many people believe about God then? If they don't even believe in the things that, that their own faiths believe. Well, one increasingly popular perspective is that God is merely a force that connects us in a spiritual fashion with the universe as a whole. In our country, someone who who says they believe in God is just as likely to believe that that God is merely a, a mystical force of which we are all a part as they are to believe in God as he has been understood and confessed by the Christian church for thousands of years. But what does God tell us about himself? What does the Bible tell us about our God? Well, we see there that God isn't uh, just a personal being. He's a a tri-personal one. He's three persons in in one being. God, we might say, is the the opposite of an impersonal, vague, spiritual force. God is a personal being who knows relationships. God's very nature involves relationship between the three persons of his being. And in that amazing, tri-personal nature of God... We have the root of our very salvation and God's desire to to relate to us in a personal way. So, beloved, this afternoon, let us confront the, the lie that God is an impersonal higher power. Let us instead look at how salvation is rooted in in three persons. See that salvation is rooted in relationship. In the hearts and minds of many people today, God has either been replaced or reinvented. Our society widely mocks the idea of a personal God, a a God who has thoughts and opinions and, and judgments regarding the things that we do and say. For many, God is simply synonymous with the universe or nature or a mysterious Spiritual force connecting us all. 
We might say, beloved, there's a, there's a powerful motivation to think of God in this way. Because if God isn't a personal being, if he doesn't really have thoughts or opinions or a personality, well, then he won't care about what we do with our lives or, or how we live. When we depersonalize God, we gain independence from him. We gain the ability to determine for ourselves the the purpose and meaning of life. We gain a kind of authority to decide for ourselves what is right and wrong. When we take away from the personhood, the personality of God, we allow ourselves to become false gods in his place. But in doing that, beloved... We're not only rebelling against God. We're robbing ourselves of the salvation, the joy, the comfort, which can only be found in a relationship with our personal God. When we deny that God is a personal being, we are, in fact, denying our very salvation. For our salvation is a result of God being a personal being. To be more accurate, our salvation is a result of God being a a tri-personal being. The one being who presents himself to us as three persons. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now it's true that God did not always clearly present himself to his people in this way. To the people of the Old Testament, for instance, God stressed the the unity of his being, the oneness. One of the most important statements of the Old Testament law is found in Deuteronomy 6, verse 4, where it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. In the midst of numerous polytheistic societies, that is, societies in which people worship many gods or goddesses, the Lord taught his people to worship one God. But there were hints to the fact that this one God was in some sense more. He was in some sense a, a plurality. In the beginning at creation, for instance, our God would say things like, let us make humankind in our image after our likeness. Throughout the Old Testament, God sent the Spirit of the Lord to empower and direct people in a a very personal way. In Nehemiah, we hear the Jews pray, you gave your good spirit to instruct the people. In Joshua and Judges, we hear of times when the people of God were visited by the angel of the Lord, a mysterious figure who who spoke as the Lord, whose very presence pointed to the presence of God on earth. I don't think that you can work out the, the doctrine of the Trinity from the Old Testament alone. You can certainly see plenty of evidence and and hints at what will be more fully revealed in the New Testament. For in the New Testament, we come to see that while God is one in one sense, He's also very clearly three in another. Or to use the standard language of the church, He is one in being, 
three in persons. There are a number of places where, where you can see this doctrine in a single verse. Matthew 28, 19, for example. Jesus tells the disciples, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Not in the names of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. In a singular name, which nevertheless involves three names. How can you have three names and have that be one name? Well, that's the mystery of the Trinity for you. Another example of a single verse that points to the Trinity is found in the the well-known blessing of 2 Corinthians 13, 14. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Three figures, all bestowing different gifts upon the church of their own accord. Three persons presented as equals to the church. But if we really want to understand the Trinity, beloved, we we do not have to limit ourselves to to single verses. Everyone loves a good proof text. But if you really want to understand something like the Trinity, you don't have to to limit yourself to, to single convenient lines. Instead, we might consider, for instance, a a single sentence, which might not sound like much more than a single verse, but the sentence I want us to look at here is the the one from our reading. Ephesians chapter 1, the verses 3 through through 14. What we need to, to understand there, beloved, what might not be clear to us is that Ephesians 1, the verses 3 through 14, is actually one single long sentence in the original Greek. Now, in our English translations, it's been broken up into numerous smaller sentences, so it's easier to understand. We generally prefer shorter sentences in the English language. But if you were looking to the Greek, you'd see that this, this entire section, beloved, is really one giant thought in Paul's mind concerning our salvation. In the Catechism, we're told that the articles of the Christian faith, the the Apostles' Creed, can be divided into three parts. The first about God the Father and our creation. The second about God the Son and our redemption. The third about God the Holy Spirit and our sanctification. Well, it's beautiful about Ephesians chapter 1, the verses 3 through 14, is that you can see Paul there present the Christian faith to the believers in Ephesus in a very similar fashion. We see, for instance, in the verses 3 through 6, the Father. We see him there choosing us in Christ, we're told, before the foundation of the world, that is, before creation. We hear of the Father who predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons, thereby making Himself our adoptive spiritual Father. Then you get to to verses 7-13, through we, we hear of the Son and the salvation that we enjoy in Him. The salvation we enjoy because we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. 
And finally, in verses 13 through, through 14, we see Paul speak of the Holy Spirit. Describe him as, as the one in whom we were sealed by the word of truth, the gospel of our salvation, and who will remain with us until we acquire the inheritance that is in store for us. In other words, he is the one who makes us share in Christ and all his benefits. The layout of the uh, Apostles' Creed conveniently, or perhaps even deliberately, reflects the, the layout of Ephesians 1. See, in Ephesians 1, Paul, he's giving us a Trinitarian breakdown regarding our salvation. A clear reminder that, that our salvation is involved all three persons of God working together. To quote from one of our brothers in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, the, the Dr. Alan Strange, Thus, we might say that we were saved before time by the predestining decree of the Father. We might say that we were saved in time past by the person and work of Christ. And lastly, we might say that in our own lifetime, we are saved by the work of the Holy Spirit. These verses in the first chapter of Ephesians beautifully demonstrate the holy conspiracy of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit to save God's elect. We sinners are saved only by the grace of God the Father in choosing us for salvation, of God the Son in accomplishing our salvation, and of God the Spirit in applying our salvation in our life. That is the end of Dr. Strain's quote. God, beloved, He isn't merely an abstract power. He is a being who bears a a personal love. You might even say a tri-personal love for His people. When we speak of God desiring to do what is good for us, we aren't speaking of an impersonal benevolence towards those who are good. We aren't speaking of a system of of karma where the universe ensures that good people are rewarded and bad people are punished. We are saying that God the Father wanted to save sinful people from their just destruction. When we speak of the love of God, we are speaking of the, the Son of God who is willing to suffer rejection, pain, and the wrath of God. To deliver us from slavery to sin and the devil. When we speak of God renewing us day by day, we are speaking of the the Holy Spirit living in our hearts, working in us, teaching and directing us in the way to go. Our salvation, beloved, is the result of our personal God wanting to draw us into personal relationship with Him that we might enjoy with Him things like fellowship, community, forever. God desires to to save us, we might note, as, as individuals. God desires to have a relationship with us as individuals. Despite the fact that He knows our sins and weaknesses despite the fact that he has personally witnessed our our acts of rebellion and and hatred towards others, despite the fact that we have personally 
attacked, rejected, sinned against him. He shows to us a personal grace, mercy, salvation. Over the years, I've, I've heard and read skeptics and atheists saying things like, it's extremely arrogant to imagine that a God who rules over all the universe would care about insignificant individual human beings. Well, it isn't arrogance, beloved. Because we didn't come up with this idea. God did. God decided in his grace and mercy to put into place a plan of salvation to save insignificant individual human beings before the creation of the world. Because such is his greatness, such is his desire to claim for himself a people, to live with him forever. We have a God who cares about our individual growth and salvation, who knows our individual pains and sorrows and hurts, who knows our individual strengths and weaknesses. We have a God who truly knows us and understands us better than we know ourselves. For he is a God who deliberately upholds our our very existence by his powerful hand who actually listens to our prayers, who pours out the the blessings that we each need, who renews us day by day that as individuals we might mature in the faith and come to know and trust Him better. We have a triune God who graciously and powerfully draws each of His children into contact, communion with Himself. This brings us to our second point. The doctrine of the Trinity, it isn't particularly complicated in a sense. You know, you can teach a young child that God is one in being and three in persons. Now, you can teach even young elementary age students to to confess that God has so revealed himself in his word that these three distinct persons are the one true eternal God. The challenge, of course, in the Trinity is that we cannot fully understand what this means in a practical sense. We can't drag the Trinity, God's nature, down to our everyday earthly level. So we can look all around us in the world, and we won't be able to find anything that compares with the Trinity. So we can say, oh, of course, the Trinity makes sense. And indeed, what we see, beloved, especially in church history, is that that heresy and false teaching arises in the church. When people try to, to make the Trinity fit their philosophies and their human thinking and their human logic. It's hard to accept the doctrine of the Trinity because it reminds us that we aren't nearly as intelligent as we like to think. Accepting the Trinity involves accepting that that our human words cannot contain God. Our human thoughts cannot fully comprehend His nature. 
when it comes to the Trinity, we can have a lot of questions. Metaphors and illustrations will, will fail to do this doctrine justice. Even the words and the terms that we have agreed to use in the church to describe the, the oneness and the threeness of God can lead to misunderstandings and misconceptions. When it comes to the Trinity, all we can do is trust in the words that have been given us. Paul told the Ephesians, In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Paul's words there are a, a reminder that accepting what God has revealed It isn't something that comes by reason or critical analysis or a a leap of faith or any human action. Salvation comes by the miraculous work of the Lord. To people who are naturally inclined to reject everything that God has revealed. Not just the more challenging and mysterious teachings. That's why Paul rejoices in the faith of the Ephesians saying, Because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Paul rejoices in their faith because he knows their their faith is not simply a, a logical or a natural thing. It is something supernatural. Something which not can cannot be truly explained. Thankfully, we don't need to understand exactly how the the threeness of God, the oneness, relate. We don't have to have this uh, as a perfect picture in our mind. No doubt, if that was necessary for our salvation, God would have revealed it to us. So let us instead be content, delighted even, The knowledge that God's nature has no earthly comparison. That it exceeds our our understanding. But this is really a reminder to us that that God himself exceeds our understanding. Now, how can God be, be three and one at the same time? I don't really know. By the same... Logic? How can God track the lives of of 7 billion people here on earth all at once? And and how can He be present and and truly know what's going on in the hearts and lives of of countless believers all at the same time? I don't know. How can God uphold this this universe in which scientists have estimated there's more than a, a billion trillion stars? That's a a one followed by 21 zeros. I don't know. And that's great. That is amazing. Because if I don't know how God can be and do such things, well, I can be confident that He knows far more than I know. I know He is capable of handling anything then. We don't need to to understand the Trinity. We do need to recognize that the Bible stresses that there are three persons who have had their their different roles and their different tasks which they carry out for the sake of our salvation. We need to recognize that that relationship lies at the heart of our salvation. 
God saves us because He desires to have a relationship with us. No one convinces God to make them a a covenant child. No one proves themselves worthy of Him. God became our Father by the work of Jesus Christ, imparted to us through the Holy Spirit, because it pleased Him to do so. God's desire to have a relationship with us is a reflection of the fact that God is a relational being. In the Godhead of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the three persons relate to one another in in some fashion, which is closer than anything which which we experience as, as separate persons. The fact that God desires to have a relationship with His people. The fact that Christ is the bridegroom of the church. The fact that the Holy Spirit dwells within the members of the church. Unites them to to one another. It all points to this fact that, that God, in His very nature, craves relationship, community. Let us respond to all that He has done because of that, with thankfulness. Let us recognize that that God knows when we do those works and actions that please Him. That He truly understands us. Let us recognize we have opportunity to to hear from the Lord as He speaks to us through His Word. We have opportunity then to, to personally respond to the things that He is saying in the way that we live out lives of thankfulness towards Him. Let's rejoice that God witnesses our efforts to to live a a good and holy life before Him. He sees when we show patience and kindness to others. He sees when we turn the other cheek. He sees as we bear the mockery or cruelty of others. He sees as we suffer and endure pain and, and disappointment. We have a God who is there, who understands, who hears the prayers we issue to request help and aid and comfort, who hears as we offer up praise and thanksgiving to His name. We have a God who stands witness to all of our efforts to to live in the grace and joy which flow from a relationship with Him, which He's established there in the first place. Knowing all that, beloved, let us then live with the knowledge that in everything we do, we're doing it in the midst of a a personal relationship with our triune God. A relationship in which we can show thankfulness, we can show love, we can show joy to God for all that He has first done for us. Amen.